Happy Father's Day. <clears throat> Happy Father's Day. Uh, we got some, some gathering at our house here today. I'm not sure exactly what's happening, but Sandy knows, so I'm excited about that. I think my daughter's coming down. Um, but I just want you to know how, how important uh, fathers and mothers are and parents are. I'm not going to pull my phone out and read it, but I, I try and send my kids something on every Father's Day, but one of the things that I, I sent to them um, just yesterday, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but just the part of it, I, I told them of all the things I've accomplished in my life, of all the things I've done over my life, they are what I am proudest of. They are my greatest trophies and such a blessing. So as a father, I am so thankful for that. I just want to say that. My grandson, actually, Joshua, my oldest son, sent me, uh, uh, Josh sent me, he said, Knox just said this to me. You all know Knox, he's, he's my little grandson, Joshua's son. And he said, Knox just said this to me, and he sent it to the fam- on the family thread. And said, Dad, said, I know that um, Good News Church is looking for a new pastor for when Poppy retires. He says, I, I think I found someone. And Josh said, well, who? He says, well, me. He said, he said, I think I could do it. He said, I would be a little nervous about getting up on the stage, but I'll do it anyway. So, so that kind of blessed my heart. I sent that out. Yeah. So anyway, I was pretty excited about that. He sent me that. Yes, I sent that out to the board yesterday, and they, they love that. They love that. Right, Debbie? Yeah, they were loving that. Huh? Wednesday. So, and actually, one of the people said, well, you need to call Shepherd's staff because the search is over. That's what the board said, Right? The search is over. I said, he's a little bit young. I'm not sure he meets the educational requirements yet. First grade. I'm not sure that's the masters of divinity. <laughs> but anyway. But it really blessed my heart. You know, I'm, I, love, I love my children. I know you all do. I, I was talking with Wally um, back there this morning and Charlene over here about So you really don't know, you know, how much your parents love you until you have your own kids. <laughs> I remember telling my dad that one Father's Day. I said, Dad, now I get it. When you tell me you love me, I said, now I know, now I know what you mean. Because that's the way I feel about my children. And I knew all y'all feel the same way. For sure. Amen? So happy Father's Day. And just rejoice in that. But what a tremendous, the video, just talking about some of the many hats that fathers wear. And mothers wear. It's just such an important position. So very thankful. Well, I want to welcome you back to our series on the Gospel of Luke. And of course... It's a a teaching on the life uh, and the teachings of Jesus Christ. Um, Last week in chapter 15, I don't know if you noticed, but I was in preacher's heaven. Okay, Uh, We had these three amazing evangelistic parables that was just just wonderful. We had the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, who is also known as the prodigal son or the reckless son. Those parables were very straightforward to understand. There was a lot of lost and found. A lot of rejoicing and a lot of joy, 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 joy down in my heart, right? A lot of joy going on. And the message of it was very clear. That's what I like the most about last week in chapter 15. The message was very clear, and it is simple. Lost people matter to God, and God wants us to care about lost people. That was the bottom line message of last week. God loves wayward sons and daughters. He loves tax gatherers and sinners. And he wants them to repent. He wants them to turn their lives around and come home to them like the lost son or the prodigal son. 
And God wants us to love them also. Not the sin, not the sin, but to love the sinners. If you remember the father and the prodigal son, he didn't like what his son had done. You kidding me? He devoured half of his wealth on prostitutes and reckless, loose living. He didn't like that. But he was so grateful, so thankful that his son had seen the air in his ways, had a change of heart and mind, turned around, repented, and came back to God. That's what the parable was about. The father was rejoicing and he welcomed his son with open arms because his son was dead. He was dead spiritually, but he has now begun to live. He was lost, but he got found. He was blind, but now he sees. So the father said to the oldest son, we had to celebrate. We just had to. We had to celebrate. Jesus was using those three parables to teach the self-righteous scribes and Pharisees how God feels about lost people because that's what the parable was about. It's about how God feels about lost people, wayward sons and daughters, tax gatherers and sinners. Lost people matter to God and they should also matter to us. God loves sinners and we should too. In those parables, Jesus said this in Luke 15 uh, verse 7. He said, I tell you that in the same way, after, after the first parable, there will be more joy in heaven over the sinner, one sinner who repents, than over the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. He also said there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And like I told you, I was one of those sinners. I was one of those sinners. I was dead, dead in my sins, but I became alive in Christ. I was lost, but I got found. And I was blind, but now I see. Now I see. That was chapter 15. This week, the task for the teacher slash preacher is much more difficult and demanding, okay, because of the nature of the material and the subject matter in chapter 16. Okay, we will be looking at... Um, the parable of the unjust servant, which has puzzled many a Bible teacher through the years, and you'll see why when we get to it. We're also going to be talking about money. That's always a touchy subject, right? Talking about money and its place in our lives and how we um, use it and spend it in light of our commitment to Christ. We'll also be covering uh, the issue of marriage, and specifically, more specifically, I guess, marriage and divorce. Um, so you see what I'm saying, right? You see what I'm saying? These are very personal issues, and they're also very prickly topics for a pastor to teach on. So I want you, I'm going to just give you a heads up, buckle up, right? Hold on to your hats, because you know very well that I teach the Bible, right? So I don't pull any punches, I don't cut corners, and I don't water it down. So hang on to your napkins, all right? So here we go. Chapter 16 begins with the parable of the unrighteous steward, also known as the unjust servant or manager. He's a manager of money. But what is unusual about this particular parable of Jesus is that the servant or the manager does something very shady, very dishonest behind his master's back in order to better his future situation. Okay? And yet, even though he does that, this is kind of the crazy part, the master praises him, right? The master praises him because he acted shrewdly. He was creative in order to save his own skin, and the master actually was impressed that he came up with the idea. So that's different, right? 
That's unusual. You wouldn't expect Jesus to teach that. That's why a lot of teachers have struggled with that. So I want you to listen for that as I read verses 1 through 8 of chapter 16. The unrighteous steward. Now he, Jesus, was also saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. In other words, he wasn't doing a good job. He was maybe even doing some things that, that he absolutely should not be doing. Verse 2, it says, And he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, for you can no longer be my management. In other words, let me see your financials, right? Like Donald Trump, you're fired, right? Just like that, you're fired. So the manager said to him, What shall I do? since my master is taking the management away from me. I'm not strong enough to dig. That's what he says. And I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do, so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And this is what he did. It says, he summoned each one of his master's debtors, and he began saying to the first, saying to the first, how much do you owe my master? In other words, how do you own him? What's your bill, right? How much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Right? So he, his master just lost 50% of what was owed to him. And then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he says, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said, well, take your bill and write 80. 20%. And his master, listen, verse 8. And his master praised the unrighteous manager. Because he acted shrewdly. And then Jesus, kind of stepping back from the parable, comments. He says this, For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than to the sons, than to the sons of light. Would you pray with me? Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for uh, this parable, though it, it may not be the typical parable like that we can understand clearly. But you have lessons in this parable for us. So I pray that you would give us ears to hear what your Holy Spirit is saying to each one of us. God, help me. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart and the way I present this, Lord, may that be acceptable in your sight. And may it bring some aha and some enlightenment to those of us who are here desperately wanting to hear from you. Holy Spirit, speak to each one of us individually and corporately as your church. We pray in your name, Jesus. And all God's people said, so pretty crazy, right? Basically embezzlement, right? That's what's going on. This guy cooks the books to make some friends. Cooks the books to make some friends. He's helping lessen the financial, their financial burden and debt so that his future will be better or at least less grim. He's making friends and taking steps to ensure that they will be kind to him and benevolent toward him when he loses his job, which he knows is going to happen. And his master, crazy, praises him for his ingenuity. Right? That's weird, right? So Jesus, so I'm thinking, what is Jesus thinking here? Jesus, what are you doing? Well, I think it is a teaching technique. I think this along with other commentators. It's a teaching technique similar to that which I talked to you about in chapter 14, which was hyperbole, like when he says, if your eye offends you, pluck it out wasn't literal. He was exaggerating, or don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. This is a technique like that. He's getting everyone's attention by using an unusual example, almost like satire or even sarcasm, to communicate some very God-inspired wisdom. Because right away, what does he do? Right away, right after he tells the parable, what does Jesus say? Well, after, right after that, right after he says this, he says, the master praised the unrighteous manager, 
because he had acted shrewdly. Right after that, Jesus said this. He steps back and he says, For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own than the sons of light. That's us, right? The children of God. So he's saying these people, these secular people, are being smarter than a lot of us, right? In other words, there are some things that we can learn from this unrighteous manager, both good and bad, and Jesus wants us to learn those things. In some ways, maybe we need to be a little bit more like this guy. Not in the dishonest ways, <laughs> not in the embezzlement ways, but in the shrewd ways, in the wise ways. In Matthew 10, 16, Jesus said that he wants us to be as wise as what? Serpents, yet innocent or as harmless as doves. But he wants us to be wise, okay? You see, this guy was thinking ahead about what could happen to him. And he took some steps, he took actions that would make his future better and more secure. Ah, well that's something we could probably all learn from, right? So that's one thing that we can learn from that. That's something that we can learn from this guy. We could be more like him in that way, thinking ahead about consequences for our actions. And then we're going to see that those are actions about how you handle money and this and that, how you treat the poor and the needy later. So we need to think ahead about consequences. Then in the next five verses, verses 9 through 13, Jesus offers additional commentary that draws on the theme of this parable, which is wealth, okay, and the right use of wealth, and being faithful with what God has entrusted to each and every one of us, however much it may be, whether it's small, very particular, he says it, whether it's small or large, to be faithful with that. So I'm going to run through those verses and comment on Jesus' comments, which are all drawn from the subject matter of this parable. Verse 9 says, And I say to you, that's Jesus, I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. So he says, make friends for yourself by means of the wealth of unrighteousness. Now, I don't like that translation. That's the New American uh, Standard Bible translation. I prefer the translations that use the word mammon. Have you ever heard it? They use the word mammon. Mammon is the original Greek word that's used in the original text. And... Um, it was used, that word mammon was used by many Christian writers in the medieval times to mean covetousness. Mammon means covetousness and greed. So that's a little bit different from um, a, a wealth obtained by unrighteousness, right? So it's covetousness and greed, as in something that we long for or that we might put our trust in above our trust in God. That's mammon, something that we, is, that we are covetous of. Um, in 1667, John Milton, the famous uh, poet, used that word mammon um, in his poem, Paradise Lost. If you're familiar with that poem about the battle between good and evil, the battle between God and satanic forces for the souls of humanity. Verse 9 says, use wealth, or mammon, okay, in such a way that when it fails, which it will, right, because you can't take it with you, right? You've heard my joke, no U-Hauls behind hearses, okay? But he says, use your wealth, use your mammon, use whatever it is well, so that when it fails, you will be received into the eternal dwellings of God, into heaven. So we're to use wealth, whether it's good or bad or whatever, we're to use that in such a way that we're faithful with it, that God would be pleased with, that we will be welcomed into the eternal dwellings. We need to be responsible with what God has given us. 
Verse 10, Jesus comments on how faithful character is seen in how we handle our um, earthly wealth. You probably observed that with your children, speaking of fathers, right? When you gave them money and they spent money on ridiculous things, right? So you can see, you can tell something about someone's character by the way they use their money. So listen, I'm going to go through uh, verse 10, 11, and 12, and 13 to just comment on Jesus' comments. It says, he who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous in much. So what he's saying there, it's not so much about the amount, it's about what? Character. And what he's saying is, if you're going to be faithful in just the little things, that means that you'll be faithful in the big things, right? In a lot of money or a lot of things, right? It's about the character. Or if you're unrighteous, and even just the smallest thing, oh, it's just this, right? No, if you're unrighteous in even the smallest thing, it's about your character. You're going to be unrighteous in the bigger things. Verse 11 says, therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, which is the word is what? Mammon. If you're unfaithful in the use of mammon, things, the wealth that you would covet and be greedy about, who will trust the true riches to you? And what are the true riches? What's the things of God? It's the good news. It's the word of God. It's the law and the prophets and the writings. It's the good news that Paul proclaims to us in Romans. Those are the true riches, the things of God. So if you're not going to be faithful with, with your, your resources, you know, who's going to trust you with true riches? Verse 12. And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, referring back to the unrighteous servant, right? Who will give you that which is your own? So if you can't even be faithful with something that you're doing for somebody else, how can you be trusted if I give you something for you to keep on your own wealth? How's God going to bless you if you're not faithful with these other things? Verse 13, no servant, you've heard this, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one or love the other, or else he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And what's the word there? Mammon. You cannot serve God, okay, and covetousness and, and greed, greediness with these funds of, of greediness. You can't love God and do that. You're, you can do either one or the other. And Jesus is getting ready here because we're going into to talk about the Pharisees. And that's what they're doing. He's saying that you're not trusting in God, you're trusting in mammon. You're, not trust, you're trusting in mammon. So then in verse 14, Luke identifies the Pharisees as lovers of money. You remember I told you that it says that some people say that, that money is the root of all evil, but that's not really the, the passage. It's the what? The love of money that is the root of all evil. So he says the Pharisees are lovers of money who were scoffing at Jesus' commentary about mammon. In verse 15, Jesus confirms and exposes their greed. He's letting them know that he's got their number. He knows who they are. They try and present themselves as all that, very righteous and holy to other people. But God knows their hearts. You see, God doesn't just see the outside. He sees what? Yeah, he sees way past the outside. He sees the inside. He says, God knows your hearts, and he is not impressed. So listen for that in verse 14 and 15. It says, now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things. In other words, all the comments that I commented on and the parable, they were listening to all that. And they were scoffing at him. Who were they scoffing at? Jesus. They were scoffing. That's what I think scoffing is. Y'all try that. Ready? 
That's scoffing. There you go. All right. So he said to them, you are those who justify, which make yourselves look righteous, okay, in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. So mammon, you see, is uh, humanity, we're all about mammon. You know, we're all about wealth and, and, and obtaining and collecting and having all that. Says, but some of those, the greed and covetousness is detestable in the eyes of God. So in verse 16 and 7, 17, next, Jesus sets the Old Testament, the law, and the prophets alongside of the good news of the kingdom of God. And he affirms both of them here. I want you to know that. He affirms both of them. He doesn't say, yes, choose this over the other. He affirms both of them. He affirms them and he emphasizes the fact that the Old Testament will not pass away. Not one stroke, not one dot, not one cross T of the Old Testament law will pass away. Now, as a cross reference to help us understand this, I chose Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 to, to, to fortify this, where Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. So Jesus came to build upon the law. You remember he said the law, the law and the prophets is all fulfilled in what? That we have love for one another. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. In this, all of, is, is, that's fulfilling all the law and the prophets. So listen for that important affirmation in verses 16 and 17 of Luke as I read them for you. 16 and 17. He says, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. What John do you think that is? John the Baptist, right. Until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. They're going after that good news. But then he goes to the Old Testament law. He says, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away, which, by the way, is not going to be easy. That's his point. Hyperbole there. It's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. To fail. So that's his point. The law, Jesus didn't come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. And that the law, it still tells us what is right and wrong. That doesn't go away, right? The Ten Commandments, it's still wrong to steal, right? It's still wrong to murder. The law is not going to pass away. John Calvin used to uh, describe the Old Testament law as like spectacles that we put on, that we see the world through, we can see what is right and wrong and what is good and bad. That's, that's one of the purposes that the law fills. Jesus is saying not one stroke of the law will pass away. But the good news does bring us grace and forgiveness. Okay? After that, Jesus affirms one of the oldest human institutions in the world and also in the Bible. What is it? Marriage, right? What movie is that from, David? Princess Bride, right. Marriage. He's talking about marriage here. It started with the model of who? Adam and Eve. And it carried all the way through the Old Testament into the New Testament. The last book in the Old Testament, does anybody know what it is? Malachi. The prophet Malachi. In chapter 2, verse 16, it says this. For I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. He says, God hates divorce. So there it is in the Old Testament. And then in Matthew chapter 19, verse 5 and 6 Jesus says this, and right before he says it, he says, Now, from the very beginning, they were created male and female. From the very beginning, right? Adam and Eve, male and female. And so then he says this in the next verse. He said, For this reason, because of that, he said, A man shall leave his father and mother, 
I just said this at a wedding, Bill and Margaret's grandson, on, just on Monday. A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined or cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, okay, let no one separate. And, and I don't know if you remember, I love the King James Version. It says, let no one tear it asunder. You don't hear that very often, do you? In other words, it should not be broken up. It's, it's talking about divorce. It says, let no one separate. And then in verse 9, Jesus said, whoever divorces his wife except, so he gives an exception, right? Whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, the adultery clause is what stings, doesn't it? The adultery clause is what makes all of us cringe as we're thinking about maybe it's us or maybe it's somebody else that's going through this and we just cringe when we hear that. But here's, here's the thing I'm trying to say. That's what it says, you know. I'm the messenger, right? Right? I'm the messenger. That's what Jesus says. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard this, but Billy Graham's wife, Ruth Graham Bell, was being interviewed. And, um, you know, they had had some trouble in their marriage because he's gone all the time and traveling. She's home raising all the children. And so the person asked, says, Ruth, did you ever consider divorce? You know, divorcing Billy. She says, never. Never divorce. She said, murder, yes. Murder, absolutely. But divorce, never. Right? Never. So right there, in, in, and here in, in verse 18, it's even stronger in Luke. He says, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. So there's that. Now, a lot more can be said about that and has been said. Okay? Um, and some people say this. Some people say, well, that was then. And this is now. You can't really put that into effect now because that was then and this is now. Okay, and that's true in, in the sense that at that time, women were very vulnerable in that kind of patriarchal society. And they were very vulnerable and they, they, almost, they almost had to have the, the family structure with the father and the children and the sons and all of that to survive. The family unit was so very important at that time. And it is different for women now. Right? It's very different. So some people say, well, that was then, this is now. Okay, but, but here's the thing. There's a lot of truth to that, but it does not change this biblical principle. It does not change the principle of marriage, family, and fidelity. Because that's what this is about. Marriage, family, and fidelity, and the institution of marriage. Like I said earlier, marriage and family are the oldest institution in the world and in the Bible. Okay? And here's, here's this, marriage and family is the foundation of human civilization. Do you believe that? It really is, ever since the very beginning, and it still is today. It's the foundation of human civilization. That's not a bad thing, that's a good thing. You know, my little family, okay, my little family, and Sandy and I, and Joshua, and, and, and all my children and their spouses, we're just like this little block that gives civilization stability. Marriage and family are the building blocks of our existence and continuance as the human race. I learned that not in Bible school, in anthropology at UCF, right? It's the stability. It's one of the, the main foundations of our society, and it's a biblical principle. They are made male and female, and, and they join together, and they're not to be separated, and it's, it's, it's part of our society that keeps us going. 
It's a biblical principle, but it's also a principle of many other sciences, right? So next is the parable of the rich man Lazarus. How many of y'all have ever heard this parable? Anybody? Pretty rough parable, right? It's quite a unique, amazing parable on so many levels. The setting, the message, and the graphic, tragic picture that Jesus paints for us in this parable. Because this is a parable about a failure of human compassion and caring. That's what it is. It's a parable about the tragedy of a failure of human compassion and caring. It is also a tragedy. It's a tragedy because of a lack of foresight in what the future holds for us in God's kingdom of heaven, which also sort of reaches back to the parable of the unrighteous steward, right? Who he, At least he thought ahead. At least he was thinking ahead. This is a tragedy of not thinking ahead and the consequences of turning a deaf ear to the suffering of others. Okay, if there's anything we learn in the New Testament and the Old Testament that we can all agree upon, it's that we are not supposed to turn a deaf ear to people who are hurting and suffering. This parable is about that. In 1980, you guys might, might not know this, but I was the choral director and also a humanities teacher at Winter Park High School, freshly graduated from UCF with my bachelor's in music performance. And I took the place of my high school choral director. His name was Bud Beadle. Uh, his son, Doug, and I were best friends. We, we graduated um, together. We were both uh, in our class. We, were number, we graduated 365th in our graduating class. Now, that sounds terrible, but we had 900 people in our graduating class. So, so, but anyway, Doug and I, we used to get in a lot of trouble in chorus. But his dad was the choral director, and he was in the chorus. And for three years, Doug Beadle, I mean, not Doug, but, but Bud, Mr. Beadle, was my teacher. Okay, but now I was the teacher. I was the director of all the choral programs at Winter Park High School. A greenhorn, no doubt, right? A newbie, for sure, okay? But I knew the ropes because I had been there, and I'd, I'd paid attention, and I, of course I had my degree in music and all of that. But my first year there, I took four groups to district contest. I took the concert choir, the women's chorus, the girls are the women's chorus, the men's chorus, and also the um, show choir or the show choir ensemble. But one of the songs that the boys' chorus sang was a classic one that you would use. When I was in high school with Mr. Beale, and that's why I chose it, because I had learned it when I was at Winter Park High School with him, is Poor Man Lazarus, which fits, like, with the, two, with the sermon today. Has anyone ever heard a men's chorus do that? You know I'm going to sing it for you, right? I still remember the bass part. It goes like this. Poor man Lazarus, sick and disabled, Dip your finger in the water, come and cool my tongue, cause I'm tormented in the flame. He had to eat crumbs from the rich man's table. Dip your finger in the water, come and cool my tongue, cause I'm tormented in the flame. Dip your finger in the water, come and cool my tongue, cause I'm tormented in the flame. Thank you very much. Thank you. I started a little bit high, because I'm a little bit, you know, nervous when I get up here. I started a little bit high. Should have started loader, lower. So, um... I want you to listen for what I just sang to you, all right, because um, it fits, and I want you to listen for what I just told you in verses 19 through 21 of this parable of Lazarus and the rich man, starting at verse 19. It said, now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple. That's what rich people wore back then. It was very popular. Not many people could afford um, purple, purple um, material. 
So he habitually dressed in purple, so this is a very rich man, and fine linen. And listen, it says, joyously living in splendor every day. So this is the guy, he's got a lot, right? He's got a lot. And then it says this, and a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores. Did you notice he was laid at the gate probably because he was disabled and he couldn't walk? He was so diseased and disabled. So he was laid at the gate covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Okay, so the scene is set. It's pretty, pretty crazy, right? The scene is set. An extremely wealthy individual living a life of splendor with everything anyone could want every single day. Right? And there's a poor man. His name is Lazarus, who is diseased and disabled, surviving only by begging and throwing himself at the mercy of the rich man. It says that Lazarus was surviving. It actually doesn't say he was surviving on the scraps from the rich man's tables, but he was actually longing for them. We don't really know if he even gave them to him, but he was longing for the scraps that fell from the rich man's table, for the crumbs that fell. And the way that this is written by Luke, apparently, I think he did it on purpose, apparently even the dog was more compassionate to Lazarus. The dogs took better care of Lazarus than this guy who's dressed in purple and fine linen and just living in splendor all day long. He, he compares it to the dogs. And you know that dogs, they say, where's Candy? She's back there. She knows dogs are supposed to have an, antiseptic quality, you know, in their tongues. And so they're licking his sores and, and trying to help him. Rich man did nothing, okay? Then the scripture tells us, what's coming up, is that Lazarus dies. He dies either of disease or starvation. We don't know because it doesn't tell us. But he's carried off by the angels to heaven where Abraham is, Father Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, right? And the rich man also died, but he goes somewhere else, okay? He doesn't go uh, to Abraham. He goes to a place called Hades. You know the Greek god of the underworld? What was his name? Hades, right? And so Hades is the place of the dead, and that's the word that's used in the Greek New Testament. It's our equivalent of hell because it says he's in torment and in agony because of the flames so the rich man calls to Abraham this is a parable it's an allegory so the image is he calls to Abraham somehow to him he, and he asks Abraham to send Lazarus to him to comfort him now that's that's ironic isn't it he didn't help Lazarus but he says Abraham please send Lazarus to come down here and to help me. And what he wants Lazarus to do is to come and dip his come to Hades and dip his finger in the water and touch it to his tongue because he's tormented in the flames. Dip your finger in the water, come and cool my tongue because I'm tormented in the flames. Try it. Dip your finger in the water, come and cool my tongue because I'm tormented in the flames. So that's what he wants Lazarus to come and do. And that's what the song is about. So it fits, right? It fits. So Father Abraham, what does he say when the rich man requests this? He says, nope. There's no can do. He says, you see, there's a huge chasm, and it's fixed between heaven and Hades, right? And it's not possible to cross that. He says, there's no way to get there from here, and there's no way to get here from there. So I want you to listen for that in verses 22 through 26. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. 
And the rich man also died and was buried. And I bet you he had a nice tomb, though. Bet you he had a nice tomb, right? In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received good, your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able. And that, that none will cross from over there to us. So he's saying, even if we wanted to do that, we couldn't do it. It can't happen. So it sounds pretty hopeless, doesn't it? Very hopeless. But it gets worse. It does. Believe it or not. It gets worse. In verses 27 through 31, the rich man takes a different approach. He has a different tack. He doesn't ask for Lazarus to come to him anymore, but he begs Father Abraham to send Lazarus to his family to warn them because he has five brothers. And he wants Lazarus to tell them about his terrible situation of torment so that his five brothers will repent and not suffer the same fate as him, right? But again, Abraham does not comply. He says, no can do. Nope. Nope. So listen for the tragic response and conclusion of this parable. These are the last several verses. It's Luke chapter 27 through 31, if you're following along. It says, and he said, then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment, right where he is. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Let them listen to Moses and the prophets. But the rich man said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. If you send Lazarus, they will repent, because he's dead. That'll get their attention, right? That's John Blake translation. But he said to him, if they did not listen to Moses and to the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Wow, right? I mean, just wow. Did you hear that? He said, if they did not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. In other words, they know the law. They know the law of Moses. They've read and studied the prophets. Your five brothers and you did too. They've studied the prophets. They know what the prophets say about compassion and caring for the poor and the needy. They know all that. They're Hebrews, because they were. They're Hebrews, sons of Abraham, right? If they didn't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded by a dead man. It doesn't matter. What a strong message. And what a powerful parable. But what a terrible, right? What a terrible, powerful parable. It's incredible. I mean, you can't, it's hard to not be moved by, by trying to live into that. 
But here's the bottom line that I want to share with you today, the bottom line of this parable. And that is this. Our lives should be ruled by the law of love and compassion. That's the message of this parable. Not by greed and self-interest and self-fixation. Um, Not mammon. And that we should never turn a deaf ear to the suffering of other people. We should never turn a deaf ear to them. We should always feel compassion. And what an ironic twist at the end of this parable of Jesus. The irony is thick. What a shift in the reversal of roles that we see at the end of this parable. The one who was suffering with unbearable poverty and hunger, plagued with disease, he ends up in a place of comfort and peace, eternal peace. While the other person, the rich man who, who didn't care, the dogs cared more about Lazarus than he did, very selfish, this person Joyfully living in splendor every day finds himself in perpetual agony, tormented in the flame. Kind of reminds me of the Charles Dickens classic, A Christmas Carol, but without the happy ending, right? You remember? This is more like the Jacob Marley. Do you all know that story? Yeah. The rich man, this is more like Jacob Marley. But you remember the happy ending was Scrooge repents, right? He repents. And, and he wakes up and he's as giddy as a schoolboy. You know, that's the original one, I think, right? And, and, and at the end it says, there was no, after that happened, there was no finer fellow than Ebenezer Scrooge. And sharing, he took care of Tiny Tim, Uncle Ebenezer. You remember? It was a happy ending, right? Because he repented, he saw the air in his ways. That's, but it was a happy ending. This is not a happy ending. This parable does not have a happy ending. It's not a happy ending. It's, it's a warning is what it is. It's a warning. It's a terrible parable of warning. And what the message is for us is our lives should not be ruled by mammon, should not be ruled by the law. We should be ruled by the law of love and compassion, not by greed, not by self-interest, not by self-fixation. And the message is that we should never Ignore the needs of others. We should never turn a deaf ear to those who are suffering. Ever. Are you okay? Because I'm done. I'm done now. Isn't that what Forrest Gump says? I'm done. Something like that. All right, would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for uh, the parables last week. And, and we thank you for the parables this week that that lost people matter to you and you care about us and you love sinners and you want us to. But God, we thank you for the parables of this week that teach us uh, some things even from a very irresponsible and dishonest manager that we should be thinking ahead. We should think of, of good ways to spend the resources that you've given us and to let the way, we, the way we spend our resources and the way we live our lives be a reflection of faithfulness and trusting in you. Lord, you said to, to whom much is given, much is required. And, and we thank you for that. Um, I pray that you would help us, give us insight um, not to be, you know, smattered with guilt because of this, but to just really consider, um, to be, really consider and to be thinking about, you know, how we can be more faithful to you and, and how we can uh, reflect you and your compassion and your love um, to others. So we pray that you would teach us, uh, teach us through this message, through these parables, through your word, 
because uh, we know that they, they have great intention. And there are things you want to teach us through this. So I pray that you would help us to listen, Lord. Like, like, like the five brothers should listen to Moses and to the prophets. Help us to listen to Moses and the prophets. Help us to listen to you. Help us to listen to these parables. And to discern just what it is that you want to teach me. Help me, God. Help me uh, to discern and to ponder and to think about where I can be more faithful. And, uh, and be a better steward of the gifts you have given me uh, in my life. The gifts and the talents and the resources and all of those things. For we pray in your name, Jesus, and all God's people said.